This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. With me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm uh, on the back of a forum next, so my feet hurt, and uh, my voice is nearly gone, and I've met so many people from way back when, so it's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm terribly jealous that I'm not there with you. Uh, yeah. And who do we have on the 3D pod, though, since you're, you're taking the sacrifice and coming to do the 3D pod whilst you're at Formex? Yeah, so we've got, uh, we're really excited about this. And you know that, too. We were both mentioned his paper a couple times already. Uh, as Paul Gradle is here today. And Paul is principal engineer at NASA. Uh, and he started actually, uh, he's a systems engineering uh, student who then went on to work at GE Transportation, later joined NASA as a senior propulsion engineer, then a principal engineer, uh, and he spent, yeah, for like nearly 20 years at NASA doing all sorts of exciting things, and recently he's written a book, uh, and that book is Metal Added Manufacturing for Propulsion Applications. He did that together with uh, Omar Moraes, Christopher Proltz, and Chance Garcia, um, which you can read. I have not read it, by the way, not yet. I, it's on my list uh, to read. But I have read Metal Added Manufacturing Aerospace, a review, which is absolutely fantastic paper by uh, Paul and a bunch of other people, by the way, uh, Byron Blakely-Milner, uh, Glenn Stedden, Michael Brooks, John Pito, Elena Lopez, Martin. Martin Leary, Philip Roberto, and Anton Duplessis, uh, maybe, uh, as Metal Additive Manufacturing Aerospace, a review. And he's, actually, you can download that, so that's accessible. And it's absolutely fantastic. If you're in metal additive manufacturing, specifically, or uh, just generally, even if you're not in space, I highly recommend reading it. I highly recommend you giving it to people who are new to the industry or who really want to get a grip on things. Uh, it's a really fantastic paper. And that's why we have uh, Paul here. Welcome, Paul. <laughs> Great. Hi, Thank Paul. you so much for having me and uh, really excited to, uh, to talk additive. We have a lot of stuff going on at NASA uh, in metal additive manufacturing for aerospace, propulsion, uh, designing, building, testing components every day. So I look forward to digging into uh, different aspects of that. Perfect. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for your paper. Uh, that's really amazing. Um, okay. So first off well actually how did you get into additive you're doing this uh, engineering at nasa when did you first kind of use additive yeah so i started um at nasa in, in 2004 and we actually had a metal uh, additive printer at the time mm -hmm. and i remember uh, when we first got this printer and you know they said hey is there any parts that you want to go uh build on this printer and i was like oh fantastic you know i've been around some of the different plastic printers and uh, you know now we can go do this in metal. So I designed a part up and sent it down there. And a couple of days later, they called me and said, "Hey, your part's done." And I remember going down to the lab, so excited, and seeing my little part sitting <laughs> yeah. there on the desk and picking this part <laughs> up and looking at this thing and, and thinking, "Wow, this this looks awful." Really <laughs> early days of additive, but you know, I think we saw the potential in this. You know, being able to print in metal and being able to do the complexity was just something that you know was really going to revolutionize how we're doing things. And and here we are, twenty years later, building, testing parts every day um, on it, and we're seeing how it's really changed. Um, you know, the industry in general. So I'd say about 10 years ago is when we really went all in on additive. There was a few vendors that had machines. This is when the uh, laser powder bed fusion got a lot better. You could actually build parts for more than a few days at a time without the laser uh, going out on you. Um, so we're able to make real parts. And in, I think around 2011, 2012, we tested a part on one of our engines and it was a simple duct, but it was a duct that took a long time to make. It was this big 180 degree duct and traditionally took a long time to make that. We were able to print it in a couple of weeks and post-process it. And, and I think from there, you know, a very simple part, but it just demonstrated to us hey, additive is, is real, right? And now we're making really complex parts, combustion chambers, injectors, nozzles, all kinds of stuff. So that was my first venture, you know, into it. And 
2004, you know, really engaged in 2010. And then since then, we've been exploring just all the different aspects of, of additive, all the different processes, new alloys, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a lot more about each of those. Okay. And what was the, the driver? I mean, okay, back then, let's say, what was the thing that said, okay, wait a minute, we need to investigate this technology. What really opened it up for you guys? I think, well, early on, it was uh, back in 2004, it was just more prototypes. Can we make prototypes and, you know, understand what our designs are going to look like? Touch and feel parts and, and you know, get a better feel for the designs. Um, obviously, since then, we are far beyond prototypes. So I think the real motivation is the economics of it. Uh, in aerospace, a lot of the parts we do are very complex, and we have very long lead times on a lot of these parts. It's not uncommon that you know, I can call one of our forging vendors or casting vendors, and they might say, yeah, it's uh, 20, 40, 50 weeks just to get a forging, and then I need to go machine the part and braze the part and go through all the other steps. So there's times where some of our uh, you know, components have taken years to make an additive. We're able to significantly reduce that lead time to the order of months, days, um, sometimes. Uh, and of course, with that comes significant cost reduction. You know, nothing we do in aerospace is, is necessarily cheap. Um, so cost is king, schedule is king. And of course, the technical performance on that too. We need to meet all these design requirements and these really complex and harsh environments and with additive we're able to make new designs that we couldn't make before new ways of cooling parts for different uh, uh, heat exchangers you know new ways of doing these complex flow passages um, in there so there's a lot of aspects to it and i think one thing that we're starting to find even more as an advantage of additive is we're able to create custom alloys and new materials that you couldn't make with traditional manufacturing processes. So I, I think in general, we're still the infancy of what we're learning about, even though we're using it every day and, and finding out more and more uh, advantages of, of the AM. I was just gonna say, if you brought it so much to this forefront, like, so let's take, you know, the Artemis launch that just happened. First off, congratulations, set it launch. How many um, parts were on there that were printed by by you guys yeah so i mean first what what an incredible week um right you know, <laughs> Ar artemis was just absolutely awesome um lots of people that worked a lot of time on that and just to be able to to see that go up and you know orion will be orbiting the moon um soon and tons of other experiments uh on on artemis you know that are just really gonna allow us to live and work in in deep space so um, awesome, awesome week. Um, on Artemis 1, there were a few additive parts, and they were mostly non-critical uh, parts. So there was some brackets for instrumentation and lines and stuff like that. On future Artemis launches, we do have more critical parts um, that will be you know, have, have to go through all the certification and the standards of that. And that's one thing that I think that we're starting to understand more about additive, right? It's a, it's a new manufacturing technology that we're all excited about and we want to use it where it makes sense. Um, however, we need to do that safely. So with NASA, mm -hmm. first and foremost, we have to keep our astronauts safe on that. So just because we see that, yeah, we can go use additive for this, we want to make sure that we're going to certify this properly. The parts are going to be you know, highly reliable and, and that we're keeping our astronauts safe with that. So Artemis 1, very few parts, but future Artemis missions, uh, we have what we call the Pogo Z baffle, which is on the RS-25 engines, the propulsion system, liquid propulsion system uh, on the SLS uh, vehicle. It's a Pogo Z baffle, and it's a a very complex uh, part that acts as a damper for the uh, oxidizer lines um, on that. So very critical application. NASA has been involved probably the last eight years or so working on documents and standards for how we certify these parts. And it's something that's been a big need across industry in general, because again, a lot of commercial space and industry are using additive um, but we don't want to use additive just because it's cool or just because it's right. you know the new kid on the block. 
we have to do it safely. And I think one thing that, that I'm often asked is, you know, what keeps you up at night on additive? <laughs> and one of my concerns has always been that somewhere a part is going to fail and it's going to give additive a bad name. Um, and we've seen this happen with other manufacturing technologies. So one of our goals at, at NASA is to really educate uh, people on additive. I think that's one of the reasons that we publish a lot of these papers. The reason that we put a book out there is we want to see the proper implementation of additive. Um, you know, understanding the entire end-to-end -end process from design to the process itself, post-processing, and how you do certification um, of it. And I think as a community, you know, we can we can come together and we can build upon that um, so that we are flying safely and we don't see any failures uh, in, in additive and critical applications. Which do you guys actually get to kind of lead the way on the certification stuff, right? I mean, you're... Uh, an end client for a lot of people that are doing this. And so are you out there alone trying to set these standards? Or are you trying to work with other space agencies? Or are you trying to work with the whole greater aero industry to set up this process to make sure that it's not as, you know, as effective and safe as possible without being overly cumbersome and so forth and so on? <laughs> Right. I, I think with all additive, we want to engage industry. Industry. We want mm -hmm. to be working with industry. We want to be working with other agencies. So we are not doing any of this in a vacuum. We are working. Uh, NASA has had a great relationship with uh, the FAA on the aviation side. They're looking at how they use additives. So there's been a lot of partnerships there. We've had different partnerships like with ASTM, who does a lot of standard development. There's been interactions with ESA and you know, other organizations around the world on this because as a community, we all have to come together and understand, okay, here's how we're using additive. Here's, here's you know, the different uh, cases of it, the different criticalities um, of it. And again, we don't want to just produce a document and put it out there and say, okay, good luck industry to try to meet our requirements. Right. No, we, we want that to be an active conversation in, in additive. And I think a lot of the standards that we've developed they're tailorable, right? They're, there's very strict things in there, but a company can come in and say, you know, for this application, it's, it's not as critical, so I'm only going to meet this, this, and this. And they sort of look to us like, you know, is that okay? Um, where other times, you know, we're saying, no, you need to meet all these requirements because if you lose this part, you know, you're, you have a complete loss of mission and, you know, potentially a, a catastrophic, you know, failure. Um, on that. So I think with all of additive, not just the standards, we want to be working with, with industry. And ultimately, we want to set up these supply chains with industry. So not just for us to buy parts, but for any commercial space company or really any industry. And I think that's one of the unique things about NASA's role in a lot of this is all the work that we're doing is openly accessible. We can go hand out material properties and write all these papers and try to educate the community, you know, in general. We're not holding this stuff proprietary or, or anything like that. Because again, I think just that openness and those those conversations just help grow the technology when, when we're more honest uh, about it. Uh, I think I want to pick up on one thing that, that you mentioned. I think that's, to me, it's, it's so exciting that I really don't understand what we're going to do about it or with it. That's the idea of like, on the one hand, we could, well, we can design a part, right? Then we can give it novel geometry and novel texture through the, the you know, just, just making a texture or, or change the inside of it. We could even change the properties to add structures. We could also play with a microstructure to get a different part, right? And on top of that, we can use additive to make an alloy, and that's just so fast and cheap now that it, maybe you could make an alloy just for rocket engines or just for a particular component in an engine or something like that. So we're actually designing on many levels, right? The, 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 we can design a, a part with some properties on many, many different levels at the same time rather than just saying, this is how we cut it out of a block of, block of something, right? A absolutely. And um, it probably also almost makes my head hurt on the infinite number of possibilities in additive. Uh, but I think all the things you mentioned are, are definitely true. We've really trying to take on some of that new alloy development. Additive has just offered this very 
unique opportunity to make materials with different microstructures and different properties that we could never build before. Or if we tried to build them before, you know, it was years to, to get these wrought forgings and really expensive because you have to buy it in thousands of pounds. Well, now you know, we've um, developed several new alloys. One is a GR cop uh, alloys or a copper chrome niobium. And these are made for combustion chambers with very high temperatures, strength, very high strength at temperature, really high conductivity. And we're using that. Commercial space is using this material. There's a whole supply chain set up for it now. And we're actually seeing a lot of other industries starting to pick it up as well. Electronics industry and some other areas that are using heat exchangers. So that's exciting to see the spinoff of that. And we're developing other materials, um, some hydrogen resistant materials that are used in rocket engines um, that were enabled by additive. And same thing there. We're seeing power and energy start to pick up some of these materials. They're saying, oh, yeah, we have a need for this and you guys develop this. Um, but then we're also exploring a lot of new materials. There's this whole family of materials, oxide dispersion strength and materials where we're able to get twice the strength that we could of some of the traditional nickel-based super alloys at high temperatures, like 1100 C. Um, and, you know, oxidation of these materials is almost negligible. So, for, for instance, in some of the nickel-based super, super alloys, you know, we would see heavy oxidation in a matter of, I don't know, 100 hours. And now we're able to create these ODS, these oxide dispersion strengthened materials with AM that we've been testing for, I think, 5,000 hours, and we can't get them to oxidize. So there's just this whole new class of alloys that didn't exist before that enable, that additive has enabled. And like you mentioned, with additive, now I'm able to do these really unique designs. And I think our designers get to have a lot of fun with this, too, because you can be creative in your designs and do these things that, that we couldn't machine or we couldn't cast or you know, we're just impossible or to make with other um, techniques. So we've been doing a lot of these very complex designs. But with that, I think comes a lot of training of our designers. And um, one thing that I think has been unique about additive, particularly all the things that you mentioned, like design and the processes, and these new alloys is we've had to shift our culture a little bit too, because what was a traditional designer um, you know, would, would create this design, hand it off to a structural analyst. After they're done with that, we'd hand it off to our manufacturing engineer and our quality person. Well, a lot of those roles have merged together. So now our designer, they need to understand a bit about metallurgy and the microstructure. If they're designing an area that's thick and another area that's really thin with additive, sometimes those properties can be different. I think that's important for them to understand that. You know, and then they're also sort of the manufacturing engineer. There's creating this model, and from this model, the parts are being printed. So there's there's so many aspects of additive, you know, even culturally, um, that I think have just changed the industry, which has been really fascinating to me. Oh, that's one thing we keep hearing. Like uh, we keep hearing that it's now a team sport. You have to work all the different disciplines. You have to work in an integrated way together, and the feedback loops has to be short. And everyone can be collaborating. I think I think that and everyone's kind of has to be kind of slightly cross trained or something. You know, you know, you know, it's not only about just doing FEA. It's about doing it together with people. I think a bunch of people have mentioned exactly the same thing. Yeah, I I love the comment that you just made on that because that really is the messaging in our book is if you're going to apply additive, um, we want it to be intentional and we want engineers using additive to understand that entire life cycle. So I think oftentimes with additive, uh, it's easy to get focused on the process, right? I, I watch a part being built with laser powder bed fusion or with DED or cold spray or something. And we, we tend to focus on that, but really to be successful in metal additive manufacturing, it's that entire life cycle. And all those decisions for the life cycle are made up early in the design process. Um, so for instance, you know, when I'm designing a part, I need to think about, okay, well, what feedstock am I gonna use? What are the parameters that I'm gonna use for building this part? Because if I change parameters, my microstructure is gonna change and I can actually get, you know, different features on the part. And then 
the process itself, you know, all the inputs that go into the machine and the environment that you're building in, and then post-processing. So we don't just take parts out of the printer and be able to plug them into to our applications, at least not yet. Um, we have to do post-processing. A lot of times we have to do powder removal, support removal, um, heat treatments. There's some sort of machining that we have to do uh, on these parts for interfaces. There might be polishing processes, cleaning of these parts. Well, if we don't make those decisions early in the design process, um, oftentimes we can end up with scrap parts. And I'm sitting here looking on my desk of all these scrap parts uh, because of things that that went wrong during the build or in post-processing. I can tell you there's been several times where we've built parts and then I want to go machine it and I bring it down to my machinist and they throw their hands up saying, I don't I don't know how to hold this part. It's so complex. I don't know what datums to pull um, off of this. And I've heard a lot of similar stories to that. So yeah, all those decisions need to be made very early in that design process and, and placing an emphasis on that entire life cycle. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, that whole life cycle includes certification too. So I need to be thinking about early, well, how am I going to inspect some of these parts? We, we often say that um, complexity is the inverse of inspectability. So just because I can make a really complex part doesn't necessarily mean that I should because I need to figure out how to inspect this thing. And, and you know, we may not have the inspection technologies to do um, some of that. So I, I totally agree with your point um, on that, 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 yeah, a lot of these roles have merged and we need to educate our designers for how they do this. Also, one thing I'm arguing about these oxide dispersion strengthened uh, uh, super alloys and, and other materials. Like, I mean, I think I think it's it's notable that the, most of the other like Inconel 625 and all this is like are also NASA materials or GE materials or somebody made them way back when, and they're they're really old, right? And all of a sudden, we're now getting that update to these materials. Is that is there a reason for that? I mean, it seemed like these Hasloy and all these. It seemed like they were all like a lot of them like the 30s, 50s, 70s, and now all of a sudden we're we're seeing many more materials. Is that like a you know? Are people wanting to do this, or is it just become easier to do this, or what's the reason for that? I, I think all of the above. Um, it it is easier to do it. So when we did alloy development 20 years ago or 30 years ago, is you would have to develop the the chemistry for this alloy go do a casting of that make it into a forging um you know and then there might be other processing that goes with it and that could take six months a year a couple years to maybe iterate on that and now we're able to do use software to go do modeling of these different alloys to say okay are there are they going to be weldable the different phases that we're going to see in these alloys you know, even like a prediction of some of the, the mechanical and thermal physical properties. Um, so we're able to use that, that, those early modeling tools and we can go make powder pretty quickly and sometimes a matter of, of weeks or a couple months, put it in a machine. I can have parameters in, in a week or so on this. Um, so we're able to go through those iteration cycles very quickly uh, for new alloy development. But you're right. You, you bring up a good question. It's like, well, why are we doing new alloy development? There's a lot of alloys that are out there. Well, a lot of the alloys, traditional materials, um, many of them were not really meant to be weldable materials. And with additive, if we're using a melting process like powder bed fusion or, or DED or so, you're essentially doing micro welding um, on these materials. And you know, some of them that we, you can see micro cracking and, and defects and challenges in there. So there's an opportunity to make these new alloys that are more weldable, that we're going to get really high density um, out of them. So not only are they making the processing um, improvements with, with the AM processes better, but you're also able to get higher performance um, out of them as well. So I think that's, yeah. You know, it, it covers a couple of the facets of the, the question that you had that, yes, we want we want to keep pushing performance of our propulsion systems and aerospace components. And with that comes new materials. We're pushing the limits of some of the existing materials. But now we have this unique opportunity to do it very quickly. 
Um, and sometimes there's there's even some machines that we see that you can do this on the fly. You can mix alloys and you know come up with some different formulations in a matter of days. Um, so there's just a lot of really neat tools out there now that that have enabled this. Yeah, and then well, the one thing I want to hear more about is just GR Cop 42. I mean, that's like you've made materials before. Uh, I don't know if you you launched this. You know, this is so successful. It's also difficult to make apparently because the niobium content uh, and there's a run on it at one point, and nobody could get enough of it. And everybody was like waiting in line <laughs> to get this stuff. Um, so it became really trendy. What is the success of this material in particular? Why is 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 this? And I, I've I've just come from Firmnex, where a lot of people were proudly displaying GR Comp 42, like like the parts on the stand, and they were crowded, kind of showing off, like we've got it, we can do it, you know. And we don't really see that in the metal uh, <laughs> people, you know. It was like it was like you know the polymer guys do it with peak, but. The metal business, it, uh, it was just really struck me as like this was the material. It was like a trend. So why is it so successful? Yes, I, I, our specific use case for it is combustion chambers. And in liquid rocket engines, we have really extre extreme environments. So the combustion chambers, we typically have hot gases that are over 3,300 degrees uh, Celsius. Uh, you have cryogenic propellants flowing through these channels. Um, you know, hot gas on the other side, a very thin wall that separates those combustion gases and the cryogenic propellants um, on that. And, and in combustion chambers, we have to use copper um, or a copper alloy because you have to get rid of that heat, reject the heat very quickly um, in that. So if you're using like an Inconel or another alloy, you know, you can't go real high in your chamber pressure, which means performance, and you're going to burn up the material. So you have to use a copper. And there's been a lot of coppers that we've used in combustion chambers for decades, but some of them have a limited wall temperature. So I might only be able to run them to 500, 600 degrees Celsius. GR COP, uh, particularly GR COP 42, it's a copper chrome niobium, um, very stable at temperature. So now we can start to push the wall temperatures of these 800 degrees C which means more performance and we get you know, really high strength at temperature, uh, good fatigue life out of it. Um, and it's been a very printable alloy. Um, when we first started doing some printing in copper, we had some challenges uh, just because they're very reflective uh, with the laser. Of course, they're conductive. That's why we use them. So they start to you know, suck a lot of the heat away, particularly in like the powder bed. Um, on that, and GRCOP 42 was just a very printable material, and it wasn't necessarily designed to be that, but but as we started using an additive, we said, oh, wow, this works really great. Um, we've, we've done a lot of work with powderbed fusion. We've been doing some more recent work in the DED techniques to be able to increase the scale of this, and I think that other industries are finding the advantage of it, too. So there's a lot of combustion chambers that are being produced. Um, the, there's some commercial... Uh, space companies that will be flying GRCOP uh, 42 probably later this year. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, there's other industries like electronics and other um, you know, power plant heat exchangers and stuff that are seeing the need for this high strength, high conductivity uh, material. So it, it's exciting you know, to see that, that grow and, and being able to uh, have a part in that. There's obviously a big NASA team that... that um, that has been involved in that. It was developed at a Glenn Research Center, um, actually many, many decades ago, back in the 80s, as a raw material. And it kind of went into hiding for a while, um, just because it was too expensive to process it with rot. And then when we started printing it, we said, this is affordable, you know, we can get the powder for it. So it was something that was resurrected. And, you know, again, like I said, it was almost like it was meant, it was made for additive um, on that. So Exciting to hear uh, that that you are seeing it at uh, several locations around Formnex. And then also one thing is, is is another one that intrigues me is we've been hearing a lot about biometallics in kind of like a very mysterious kind of way. You you mentioned in the paper there's a there's a uh, Jericop, what is it forty two or eighty two and then the Inconel right six two five right and I've known that these materials have been used kind of in liners where they mix the material let's say and uh, but now you're putting them both into the same uh, kind of alloy right. Yeah, this, this is definitely another really exciting area of additives. So when, when you're designing parts for rocket engines or really any application, 
we want to be able to use materials where they make sense. So for instance, in a combustion chamber, I want to use the GeoCop 42 as the liner material because I need to get rid of that heat, but it's not the best material to use to, um, to uh, contain the pressures in there. So I want to use like an Inconel uh, based material. And traditionally, we would have to braze or weld, um, you know, or, or vacuum plasma spray material on there. So there was challenges in, in doing all of that. Well, now with additive, we're able to do multi-material and bimetallic builds, uh, which just gives us these new, new design opportunities. So we've been printing combustion chambers with the powder bed fusion process and then using other additive processes like directed energy uh, deposition to put on this structural jacket in different materials. So I can locally optimize where I need these materials. If I need conductivity here, great, use that material. I need uh, you know, a really good strength to weight material. Um, I can use that in a different area. If I need to use different materials for my flanges, let's say for like coefficient of thermal expansion or something, I can use those different materials locally um, on that. And of course, we're seeing a lot of development with processes using multiple materials in the same build. So directed energy deposition, we just did some work where we're able to print uh, a hot wall and channels, the ribs of the channels in copper, and then close it out um, using an Inconel 625. And we do this layer by layer. So we're starting to see an expansion of that as well. And again, I think that just means that our designs, we're going to be able to make them higher performance or even make them lighter weight. Um, and being able to mix these different materials just gives designers a whole, you know, blank sheet now on, on how they approach these designs. Yeah, I was really happy to see you guys in the paper. You guys actually kept coming back to DED, and I think that's wonderful because a lot of people, I think, metal printing for space, it's powder bed fusion, right? Uh, but DED is we saw this by the way at Formex as well. There, there, there was an ungodly amount of uh, uh, I, I, I pity the person that was looking for a wire DED solution at the Formex because <laughs> I wouldn't know what to tell them. It was it was just like everywhere. These companies were everywhere. But so that's good to see the industry is responding responding to perceived demand but you guys also really like DED and I think that's uh, a really helpful for technology it doesn't really get its due I think uh, it doesn't really get promoted as much or or used as much or it doesn't seem like that well I, I think it's again one of the things we've been trying to emphasize at NASA is the proper use of additive and when you would use different additive processes and maybe I should back up a step because a lot of times when uh, we we give classes or lectures or anything, I say, well, do you even need to use additive? You know, there's a lot of great um, traditional manufacturing technologies out there. And sometimes it's, it's quicker and it's cheaper to machine things. So I'm not saying that we go to additive every time. But when additive does make sense, we want to see, you know, the industry and anybody using it use the correct process just because i have a powder bed fusion machine or just because i have a ded machine doesn't mean that that particular part should be built on that so we we've put out some other papers and in the book you know we wrote a lot about how do you trade for these different processes and ded is a is a good example we had a very specific need case for it we want to go make nozzles with integral coolant channels that are two meters in diameter and three meters in height and powder bed fusion is just not going to get me there on the scale so we had to go develop uh, with some of our industry partners um, custom machines and, and custom software and unique ways of using the laser powder directed energy deposition process uh, to create these very small coolant channels in extremely large structures. And in some cases, this meant building new machines that didn't exist before. Um, so I think that is is definitely one of the unique use cases for DED, is really large scale. And in one of the papers that we uh, put out a few months ago, ro Robust Metal Additive Manufacturing for Aerospace Components, uh, we did a trade. We went to all the, the companies around the world that are making any additive uh, machines. And we say, okay, what are the size capabilities that you have? And it was fascinating to me to see, uh, particularly in the directed energy deposition, 
that there's machines out there that can make parts that are four meters in diameter and five meters in height. And there's some machines that can even make stuff larger than that. So the scale, you know, the volume that you can build now is just tremendous. And that didn't exist five years ago. So DED has been around for a long time, decades. It's been used for cladding. But now I think that we're seeing, oh, you can go use DED and make these freeform structures and you can do them at a scale that was just never possible before that we're seeing more and more companies uh, gain interest in that, you know, particularly us. We're, we're interested because a lot of the stuff we do is very large scale. Um, so, yeah, it, it's really exciting to see the, the growth of, of DED or maybe just getting the attention um, now, you know, amongst all the different processes. Okay, and, and one thing that's really exciting, well, you've mentioned a bit of the, some of the application before. I mean, from the space companies, we, we get a lot of work on thrusters, right? Engines, uh, thrust chambers, maybe. They, that's what they mentioned because, well, mainly I think it's because the hot fire test is, is very newsworthy always. And, <laughs> and, and, and it's very kind of, you know, there's a fire and it's great. Um, it's exciting uh, when it know, explodes. Yeah, <laughs> and then we also hear kind of some stuff you mentioned, like injectors and these really critical components inside. But what are some of the components... That, that you're most excited about? I, I think you mentioned you know, the, the main ones. The um, combustion chambers are, are definitely a really great use case because how we made them before, very long lead times, a lot of assembly operations. We ended up with a lot of scrap parts uh, because things just didn't go well when we were brazing or plating and closing these things out. Um, so now that enables us to go make chambers really quickly, and test them quickly so we can go through these design fail fix cycles a lot quicker than we ever could before you know before it might be years to do it now we're doing it in months um but all of our hot fire testing we are almost always including an additively manufactured injector so you have all these you know hundreds of elements um in there and, and complex throat uh flow passages and manifolds and everything that we can build as a single piece which used to be hundreds of pieces um before we've also applied additive to turbo machinery rotating components uh inducers and pellers um that you know sometimes it makes sense sometimes it doesn't or i can go machine them quicker but in some cases if i need complex flow passages within these turbine blades or you know with within some of these different rotating components now i can go do that um, with additive we've applied it to different valve um, systems and, and pressure systems, you know, and I think you're starting to see the use of additive more in, in other areas too, where we've seen some of it in, um, you know, carbon, carbon, uh, based materials, ceramic, uh, materials as well. So, um, you know, growing uses, uh, of it for, for propulsion applications. Now, I'll completely flip on this one is NASA is also looking at additive for in-space manufacturing. Um, as we, we go explore and we set up a permanent presence on the moon and you know eventually be able to go to Mars, well, we have to go build habitats. So we're looking at using 3D printing for building habitats from the lunar or the, or the Martian regolith, um, being able to make replacement components or build tools um you know up in space and being able to use the uh the different resources again from from the moon and, and mars on that so there's a lot of areas that we're looking at 3d printing and, and again i'll i'll reiterate that i think you know we need to make sure that we're applying it intentionally and not just using additive because i have a machine but using it where it makes sense um and and i again i think it makes sense in a lot of these complex components that traditionally have very long lead times you know that we can use some of these novel um, alloys so again with that we see very complex like flow passages and internal features um, lattice structures uh, heat exchanger applications um, so we've looked at it all over the rocket engine and you know some components sure additive makes complete sense other ones you know, we've had to do the economics um, of it and, and, you know, decide on a case-by-case -case basis. 
Yeah, and one of the ones you didn't mention, I think, well, kind of maybe mention, but one of the ones I'm most excited about, well, heat exchangers are definitely like amazing. And then the other one is waveguides and antenna. I think there's just so much opportunity to outperform what's out there, uh, you know, given the complexity of construction, the many parts and the many kind of brazings or other kind of things you have to do. I think the waveguides are just an amazing application as well, as well as the heat exchanger, which you mentioned. You know. Yeah, we, we haven't done a whole lot of work on that. Uh, the group that I'm in is more propulsion focused, but I have seen a lot of the research um, out there and, and many of those are using uh, GRCOP uh, materials uh, as well. So I think absolutely agree that there's, there's just a lot of very unique um, you know, applications. And I think it's exciting to see industry come up on it too, you know, medical making use of additive manufacturing and power and energy automotive. So, you know, aerospace tends to be the leader in a lot of stuff, I think with, with new manufacturing technologies, just because of the cost of our components, we always have to look at new ways of, of doing things. Um, and like you said, we, we can go make components and uh, make smoke and fire and hot fire test and, and get results from that. And I think that tends to get the attention sometimes of other industries of, oh, you're using it in aerospace. You know, maybe I can go use it in automotive and medical and other industries. Yeah, I think that's really exciting. But I think this technology transfer kind of stuff, it trickle down, uh, you know, that, that could be really exciting. But now, of course, there's also a trickle, a trickle across, if you will, to all these mega commercial space companies that you guys actually, I mean, the first... I really noticed that your space effort was at one point with this baby Bantam thing. You guys were all of a sudden putting a lot of information in public through papers and presentations that was no, no, not public. All these guys were keeping everything secret, right? So there were a lot of people in the industry that were charging full ahead with, with using uh, in, in all sorts of aerostructures and all sorts of industries. They were charging full ahead with additive. And a lot of people had no clue. They just didn't know. Um, and I think one of the interesting things is you guys did from baby Bantam that was the first time I noticed it, right? And also the work on eBeam uh, at one point as well, the same around the same period. This is like 2012, 14. Was that you guys were publicizing a lot of stuff, saying, "Hey, look, we compare this to a forge component, and it it, it performs the same," or we were we save 40 percent of the cost, or a hey, this is 80 parts, and now it's three. So you guys were really putting a lot of this information out there in a way that that made people wake up and say, "Oh, wait, we need to try this." And I think that was a, a really huge thing for the space industry. Yeah, and I think that's one of the unique roles that we have at NASA is we are taxpayer funded. So a lot of the research that we're doing is publicly available. And um, I take a lot of pride in that, that I want to go do work that is going to be used by industry. And we need to be aligning with industry to make sure that we're filling some of those gaps and, and pushing those forward. So we are able to publicize a lot of this stuff. And we've had a lot of partnerships where companies have come into NASA to do hot fire testing of some of their additive components and you know we're able to help them on that testing and their designs. Um, we actually do a ton of consulting across the commercial space industry. So we have these uh, commercial space act agreements that companies come in and they pay NASA to help them with that. And I'd say majority of these have been an additive and again the successful implementation of it and how do we do the qualification of additive? Um, but we're also in this unique position, like you said, that we can publish a ton of this data. So a lot of times when we publish papers, um, they're, they're needs-based. They're a question that we've probably gotten three, four, five times, which sort of triggers in my mind, okay, if we've gotten the same question, we need to go put something out there um, about this. And, and you know, all the papers that you mentioned, the book um, that we published, that was all needs-based because we got questions over and over again on that. And we were realizing, well, we need to go do a better job of educating on, on how to apply additive um, manufacturing. Now, beyond all that, we've seen a lot of efforts and, and really more so some gaps that we've had to take on in terms of material properties development. Um, I think most of these companies are developing their own sets of material properties, you know, maybe on a few select alloys, but all that information is is proprietary, and we we understand that. Well, back in the 50s and 60s or so, um, when a lot of these super alloys were gaining popularity, the government took on a role and said, okay, we're going to go characterize a lot of these 
materials and we're going to make all that data public. That hasn't necessarily happened in additive until the last few years as we've seen that need and we said, okay, let, let's go get our hands on these different materials, all the common materials that are being built from you know, Inconel 625, 718, the cobalt chrome, the stainless materials, you know, the um, a bunch of the different Hanes materials and um, aluminum alloys and everything. So we are in the process of working a feasibility database for about 55 different alloys and going through the characterization of those, the heat treatment, and then doing mechanical and thermal physical testing and sharing those properties. And if a company wants to make use of those, fantastic. You know, we're, we're happy to hand off that data. If they want to build on that data too, you know, if they're using a certain alloy for their flight application, they can build upon that. Um, so again, I think there's a lot of those roles that, that NASA is taking on. And I would say for the most part, we are working hand in hand um, with, with industry. You know, it's not a competi competition. It's really a collaboration um, in how we're advancing additive. And we like to get feedback from industry too. So for instance, if they're saying, hey, we're, we're having a really tough time with this particular you know, application. Um, NASA, can you guys go develop a new alloy or can you start working on a new ways of, of printing porous materials so we can use those for transpiration cooling? We're saying, yeah, we'll go do that. We have a need for that. We see the industry need on that. So it, it's definitely one of the areas that I'm really excited about from, from the government side, because I think we have a very unique role to share all this information publicly. One thing I do want to touch on a little bit, I mean, I think we, it's a bugbear of mine, and it's, it has to do with quality assurance and testing, and, and one of the papers mentioned something about like how some of these parts are so thick and big that, that doing a CT is not viable. Like, uh, And it seems like there's relatively little attention involved in doing the, the quality control first off and the quality assurance afterwards and measuring these parts and testing them and making sure there's no cracks and this kind of stuff is that an area that, that needs a lot more work or yeah um i think with with additive we found that there's been a lot of limits of traditional uh, non-destructive evaluations so there's a lot of techniques that we just can't use that don't apply to additive i know the first time that we took an additive part we said okay we're going to do a pent inspection on it um where you put a, a a dye on it and you know use a black light or use a developer to pull out that dye looking for cracks and defects on that well additive parts have such a rough surface on it everything lit up on it so we're like well okay you can only do a pent inspection if um you know if you machine the part so then we look at x-ray well x-ray is only you know 2d i can only just see one direction on that um, CT, we started looking at, at CT a lot and how we apply that for you know these complex structures, but there's limits. For instance, with CT in combustion chambers, uh, where we're using copper, we have a lot of thick areas on it, and the x-rays and CT tend to scatter a lot, which gives us you know difficulties in, in trying to interpret that. So I believe there's a lot of opportunities on the non-destructive evaluation and testing side to develop new technologies um, specifically for additive. I think we've seen a lot of new, higher energy, um, better resolution CT systems come out the last few years and potentially because of, of the complexity of additive. Um, I also think we're gonna see a lot of growth in the in-situ monitoring. So with additive, you sort of have this unique opportunity that you're, you're building parts layer by layer, which means that I can put different sensors in there. It might be an infrared camera, or I can put a, you know, standard high resolution camera and look at like the grayscale um, in there. I can take temperatures on my build plate and stuff like that. So there's a, a, a really big push on this in-situ monitoring. Can I go inspect my parts as they're being built and pick up different defects in that part? So that you know, maybe some here down the road that we can certify parts based on some of this in situ inspection. Now, we would still want to do microstructure and mechanical property validation and everything, but there's a really unique opportunity there. So I feel in general, though, that just NDE has not kept up with um, additive, uh, that there's still a lot of opportunities there to 
develop new techniques and some of them may even may, may be technologies that haven't even been evolved yet um, on that. But I think with, with additive, we're going to see, you know, a lot of these supplemental technologies um, start to, to be more advanced as well to keep up with the designs and, and what we can do with the complexity of the machines now. Yeah, if we look at where in-situ inspection is and how long it would take for us to get there from making a part, it would just slow us down so much. And also also this in-layer monitoring stuff, right? The, in the, the layer cam, is uh, that kind of stuff, in the printer. That's wonderful that we're trying to get it dialed in and stuff. But what am I going to do? Turn off my build? Or there's just all these people saying, oh, yeah, but I can change the the way the, the printer operates in the laser. I'm like, but then I don't know what I'm doing, essentially, you know? These things all just kind of seem really scary to me. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. And that, that is one of the challenges that we've always had. And even in our spec, um, we don't allow for parameter changes on the fly, you know, based on in-situ monitoring. Because to us, that means that something has gone wrong in your process, right? You're outside of your control limits. Um, so we don't want to just adjust for it blindly. We, we want to know well, what happened um, in that. And, you know, I think down the road, again, I think we can get smarter about in-situ monitoring, but right now you're generating so much data from each build. There's terabytes and terabytes of data. So to be able to process that real time is going to be tremendously challenging, you know, to, pro to post-process it right now um, is even challenging. But I think we're learning more about builds, um, you know, every day and, and what we see in different defects. Um, witness lines, build interruptions, you know, and how some of those might manifest, you know, into part failures. And sometimes, you know, this is one of the advantages of additive. We build a part and we see some issues on the part and we say, go build it again. It's a two-day build, right? I might spend two months trying to disposition that part or go build a new one um, on that. So, you know, additive has allowed us to be very component heavy too. And I, I, there's one example I always tell about this, that um, when I first started at NASA in our test area, we might have had four or five test programs a year. And we were always fearing that it was going to be shut down because we didn't have enough testing to support the operations out there. Well, in the last several years with Additive, we have had a 12 to 18 month queue for testing because every test program has you know, four or five components. We've built backups of backups because we want to keep testing on that. And now we run 12 to 15 or maybe even more test programs a year. And that is all because of additive because we can go through that design fail fix cycle. And, you know, I can build multiple components on that. So, you know, again, just a lot of unique side advantages, um, you know, for, for, for additive aside from just the, the complexity and you know the cost economics of the parts themselves yeah and i know what people at home are thinking you were mentioning tons and tons of data and immediately everyone at home or in the car or whatever they're thinking ai ai is a solution <laughs> and 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 we're walking the floor again on the forum next it was ai everything it was like ai coffee ai you know gummy bears it was and um so i'm sure Machine learning, machine vision, this is really exciting. But a lot of it is when I have, when I look deeper into it, and I'm not uh, by many means I'm an expert in that stuff. But I can discover that a lot of it is, is like is bold. Do you have a kind of an AI optimism now? Do you see a role for this kind of computing slash machine learning kind of stuff? I I think there's some potential opportunities there. Um, but with any of the software, you have to have good inputs um, onto it. We always say with models, garbage in, garbage out. So if yeah. we're looking at machine learning or AI, uh, we need to have good data sets to feed into that. Um, we, have saw, we have seen some unique data uh, recently that we actually worked with one of our university partners on, where we developed this very large database um, for one of the appendices in our book on the thermal physical properties of different AM alloys. And this was huge to us because... You know, we, we can't just make the assumption that the material properties, including thermal physical properties, are the same for additive parts that they were for raw parts. So we developed this, this big database of thermal conductivity, and one of our university partners took this huge data set, and for the last few months, they were 
uh, using machine learning to train, you know, based on the different elements of these different alloys on predicting conductivity. And I thought that was a unique case of it that, you know, now I can potentially use this big data set to predict future alloy development that I'm going to do. Um, so I see potential there um, for it. Um, but again, we need to make sure that we have the right data to to feed into it. And I think it's something that we can explore more. Um, I don't think it's going to necessarily replace um, the mechanical testing and, and things that we're doing. You know, maybe one day it helps us reduce the number of specimens that we have to do. So instead of testing, I don't know, let's say 5,000 specimens that I can use machine learning or or AI, so say, well, maybe I need to only test 2,000 specimens because I have this other data and machine learning that that um, gives me more confidence in some of this data. But opportunities there, but uh, still exploring with some caution. I think that's a healthy approach, generally, <laughs> uh, especially if you're building rockets, I think. Um, and um, yeah, so um, what do you hope to, to, to achieve in the last five years? I mean, I think you're really mu very much at a phase of spreading information. Dissemination is, is a big game now for you. But what do you hope to do in the next five years? Sorry. So I, I would like to see us expand on some of the alloys that we're developing. I think we talked this earlier that we are using materials that were raw materials, you know, because we're, we're used to them. Aerospace has been using them for decades. But I think we have this unique opportunity to make alloys that that didn't exist before that we can get much much higher performance um, which for us is going to enable new propulsion systems we're actually in the early development of a new propulsion system uh, called rotating detonation rocket engines um, that is enabled by additive manufacturing has such high heat fluxes um, that you we just couldn't do it with traditional materials so we're going to see advancements of that because of these new alloys um, I definitely want to see, you know, the inspection techniques and the in-situ monitoring mature, that we, we gain more confidence in, in some of that. Um, you know, I also want to see some of the design tools mature a bit more. So like the uh, topology optimization, the generative design, there's some really unique stuff out there. But in order to use that properly, we have to have good material properties to feed into that. We have to have a good understanding of our environments. Um, so I think there's you know a lot of maturation there to properly design for that um, and additive. And then I, I think there's going to be a lot of advancements in some of these AM processes, right? We're really starting to see some of the um, companies push how they're using powder bed fusion and DED and using new software techniques and new machine designs. I, I feel like we're just going to see the, the processes get faster and faster. Um, of course, from the NASA perspective, we want to explore all those and understand those. And then the last thing that I mentioned earlier is, is the education of additive is we're starting to see, you know, universities using additive manufacturing a lot more. Um, but we want to make sure that it's, it's applied properly and again not just using it because it's it's the cool new technology um, so i think nasa has a role and even industry and everybody has a role in that to educate newer engineers in in how to use additive and trade for it against traditional um you know manufacturing and and we're definitely um open you know to those conversations and how to educate and you know, get data out there and, and have conversations with industry or academia on that. So I think a lot of really neat stuff on the horizon. Of course, you know, we mentioned too, just some of the um, in-space additive. You know, I'd like to see us building habitats and building parts um, in space with additives so that our astronauts can live and work on the moon and eventually Mars. And I think that that will be another critical role for for exploration and definitely definitely motivates me and i'm excited about all that okay i'm glad i'm glad yeah that's uh i think a lot of exciting stuff for you guys uh up ahead and uh yeah so paul's written a couple or been a co-author on uh, a couple of really excellent things you should read all of them uh well okay the other stuff is some of the stuff is really very specialist <laughs> um, but the robust, the robust metal additive manufacturing process selection and development for aerospace components 
I love that one. And uh, his book I'm gonna read uh, is called Metal Ladder Manufacturing for Propulsion Applications. And uh, there's also Metal Ladder Manufacturing for in Aerospace Review, and all those are, are completely excellent. And although um, the book I don't know, but I'm guessing it's gonna be really great. Um, but I'll tell you, I'll keep you informed about that. But Paul, thank you so much for coming here. It's a real highlight for us, and we, we we've been looking forward to this for months. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm always happy to uh, geek out on additive manufacturing. So anytime, it was my pleasure. Oh, we'll have you to so have much. you back on. <laughs> so. Yeah, totally, totally. And Max, thank you for being here as well. No, always fantastic, Joris. Thank you. And uh, thank you guys for listening as well. Uh, this is the 3D Pod. My name is Joris Peels, and uh, we're here with Max Vogue and uh, Paul Gradle today. And uh, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.